0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants.
1: Um
2: more coffee, Jumbo. Thank you, Herr Piers. Any luck with the Foreign Secretary about this Scottish nonsense? I'm
1: afraid not. Can't budge him. Your minister novelled him first.
2: No chance of getting it back to London.
1: No, I'm afraid the cabinet are utterly united. All these marginal seats, you see. Shameful. Political. Typical.
2: Inevitable. And so blatant. I mean, issuing writs for three Scottish by-elections to poll on the day after the visit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> can you imagine Harold Macmillan doing anything like that? Yes. <laughs> yes, so can I, actually. <laughs>
3: Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, September 29th, 2016.
4: I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's just right.
3: Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Governments are reeling out of control, and still politicians are putting their foot on the accelerator of government spending and growth. Constitutions notwithstanding, today's crop of politicians are unaware that legitimate government has necessary limits. Limits which have long since been exceeded in the hands of the left. From the cost of electricity in provinces like Ontario, to the mindless political fight against climate change, to the deteriorating economies and not-so-rosy forecasts for the future there is a general sense universally accepted that something's wrong with our democracies and governments. And to correct that, we need electoral reform, (coughs) political financing reform, including forced financing of political parties, ending first-past-the-post in favour of PR, forced voting, and more zany ideas from the corrupt minds of the very people who are the source of all the corruption. Before we get to Robert's point and the things that you'll be talking about today, Robert, I want to remind our listeners... That they can write us at feedback at org, and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, iTunes, and YouTube.
4: Robert, what's on your mind today? Well, Bob, more the same of what you were just talking about in the intro. Um, we've got former drama teacher and snowboarder turned Canada's 23rd Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, addressing the 71st. General Assembly of the so-called United Nations on September 20th. That's what I'm going to dissect. His speech was met generally with yawns and blank stares by the journalists assembled in Canada who seemed united in their disinterest. I I, I looked at one such journalist writing in the National Post, the much-respected Rex Murphy, a journalist and political pundit I've come to admire very greatly, not so much for his opinion, which I don't agree, uh, agree with always, But his honesty, which is very rare to find in the journalist pool these days. In his article of September 23rd, Rex had this to say about Trudeau's speech. Quote, This week it was our dewy fresh prime minister's turn to address this esteemed body and either out of vanity or innocence, he didn't turn down the invitation. As to the substance of his effusion, one would need an intellectual Geiger counter to find any. The speech was described by the National Post, John Iverson as thin as soup made from the carcass of a starving pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> and that's being generous. for the address easily could have been passed off as high school valedictorian speech. It was trite without being testy and full of false equivalencies. It bore the now ineluctable stamp of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's compulsion to him yet again the all-ranging virtues of diversity. While I agree with Rex's assessment as to the entertainment value of Trudeau's speech and to the lack of any intellect spent on writing it, I think he missed a great opportunity to take Trudeau, the younger, to task for what was, for me, an expose of his moral and political philosophies. His moral philosophy, of course, being altruism and sacrifice, his political philosophy, that of socialism. Now, during his 12-minute hymn, To the, as Rex points out, dictators, kleptocrats, democratic presidents, and prime ministers, Trudeau spent 12 minutes to let everyone know that diversity is a good thing. Canada's job situation is in a shambles. Thanks for that, JT. Canada has taken in 31,000 Syrian so-called refugees, creating fear and anxiety. Mm -hmm. And then something about the middle class. Here's Rex Murphy on Trudeau's diversity barnacle. Quote, This word diversity has something of a clamp on Trudeau's brain. He seems to think that merely to pronounce it out loud is to add to the sum of human insight that its four flat syllables compress all the wisdom of the Sermon on the Mount, Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address and the best of Norman Vincent Peale into one handy little word, yet fluffing a pillow in front of the UN delegates would have had more of an impact. It's a pity that even in that forlorn venue, Trudeau was unwilling to let go of the rhetorical Linus blanket and say a few things about what is really going on in the world. He could have offered some meaningful analysis on the situation in Syria. He could have uttered some truths to those who rarely hear them. Instead, it was the usual mush about modest Canada and how we're back and ready to help, unquote. Now, rather than dismiss Trudeau's love of diversity. Rex could have given the notion of official multiculturalism, which is now called diversity. You'll notice that, Bob, in the the rhetoric out there by the left. It's called diversity now instead of official multiculturalism. He could have given it the treatment it deserves. Diversity is a non-concept politically. Everyone is different than anyone else. We're all diverse. We always have been. Even in countries who share the same ancestry, religion, and culture, there's as much diversity as there are people in the country. What Trudeau speaks of is the deliberate government support of cultures, religions, and political ideologies which are not Western, Christian, secular, or capitalistic. Hence his desperate desire to import 31,000 Syrian so-called refugees. They, for the most part, do not share our culture of individualism. They are not Christian, and their governments are not secular. This is what Trudeau means of diversity. He insults millions of Canadians who do not share his belief that the massive immigration of Muslims into what is ostensibly a Christian, or at least a non-religious culture, is not of paramount concern. Yes, Canada is a nation built on the immigration of people from all over the world, no doubt about it of all races and religions. Nobody really cares about where a person is from, his race, color, or method of praying. We do care, however, Justin Trudeau, about their politics. We know that Muslims overwhelmingly support you and your party. There's no justification to suggest that the rest of us, the majority, by the way, are in any way fear-mongering or xenophobes. We are genuinely, and with good cause, concerned that your influx of liberal supporters by way of Syria and Turkey, will have the same drastic effects here in Canada that they're having in France, Germany, Belgium, Sweden, and the rest of Europe. It is the deliberate and stated intent of liberals, progressives, and the left in Canada to destroy the very political and cultural fabric of this country. The Liberal Party of Canada began this shift from individualistic, capitalistic, freedom-loving, democratic Canada to a diverse, divisive, multicultured, collectivist, state-loving, socialist nation with Pierre Trudeau's reign in the 60s and 70s. It has continued unabated by all governments since, including the Liberal Party of Canada, the Progressive Conservative Party of Canada, and the Conservative Party of Canada. So while Rex Murphy and the rest of the media yawn at yet another speech on diversity, I see the sinister intent behind Trudeau's words, he is making popular, by his switch in words, the same concept which has been so often improperly discredited, that of official multiculturalism. Naturally, we are forbidden to talk about this camel in the tent, but it has to be recognized. Canada, by design, will lose its political identity, much as many of the once sovereign nations in Europe are losing theirs to unchecked immigration of people whose stated goal is to force their host to submit What follows are two edited excerpts from Trudeau's speech. The first will give you the overall impression of just how intentionally boring the left deliberately make their threats to freedom. It is a deliberate attempt to have us tune out rather than understand. And the second clip, admittedly highly edited, has something to do about a middle
5: class. Good afternoon, Mr. President, fellow delegates and friends. It's an honour. To be with you today. It is the responsibility of a leader to spend time with the people they were elected to serve. If you want the real stories, you have to go where people live. Coffee shops and church basements, mosques and synagogues, farmers markets, public parks. It was in places like that that I got the best sense of what Canadians were thinking and how they were doing. I talked with people my age who were trying to be hopeful about their future, but found it tough to make ends meet, even when they were working full-time. I heard from young Canadians who were frustrated, who told me that they couldn't get a job because they don't have work experience, and they can't get work experience because they don't have a job. I heard from women and girls who still face inequality in the workplace and violence just because they are women, even in a progressive country like Canada.
2: Canadians still believe in progress,
5: or at least
2: they believe that progress is possible.
5: But this optimism
2: is also mixed with a great the number Canadians
5: of concerns. And Canadians
2: are not the only ones to feel like this. These feelings are present everywhere. This anxiety is a reality. When
5: leaders are faced with citizens' anxiety, we have a choice to make. Do we exploit that anxiety or do we allay it? Exploiting it is easy. But in order to allay it, we need to be prepared to answer some very direct questions. What will create the good, well-paying jobs that people want and need and deserve? What will strengthen and grow the middle class and help those working hard to join it? What will build an economy that works for everyone? what will help to make the world a safer, more peaceful place. To allay people's anxiety, we need to create economic growth that is broadly shared, because a fair and successful world is a peaceful one. Because we believe we should confront anxiety with a clear plan to deal with its root causes. And we believe we should bring people together around shared purposes like the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Because what is the alternative? To exploit anxiety? To turn it into fear and blame? To reject others because they look or speak or pray differently than we do? You see, In Canada, we got a very important thing right. Not perfect, but right. In Canada, we see diversity as a source of strength, not weakness. Our country is strong not in spite of our differences, but because of them. And make no mistake, we've had many failures, from the internment of Ukrainian, Japanese, and Italian Canadians during the World Wars, to our turning away of boats of Jewish and Punjabi refugees, to the shamefully continuing marginalization of Indigenous peoples. What matters is that we learn from our mistakes and recommit ourselves to doing better. To that end, in recent months, Canadians have opened their hearts and their arms to families fleeing the ongoing conflict in Syria. And from the moment they arrived, those 31,000 refugees were welcomed not as burdens, but as neighbors and friends, as new Canadians. want to know where the Syrian middle class is? Refugee camps are teeming with Syria's middle class. So when I say that I hope that Syrian refugees will be, that we welcomed, will be soon able to join our middle class, I'm confident that we can make that happen. But our
2: efforts will only be successful once these refugees have been well-established as full members of the Canadian middle class.
5: What will strengthen and grow the middle class and help those working hard to join it? We are going to do everything to
2: build a strong middle class in Canada. We're going to invest in infrastructure because that will create good jobs which are well-paid for the middle class.
4: The concept of the middle class is a moving target. It is not clearly defined, and as such is a meaningless term. And yet, it's a term that Justin Trudeau deliberately tried to infuse into his speech. He mentioned it seven times in a 12-minute speech. Not only that, but you're telling me that Clinton is is trying to put that word into her speeches as well, as if it's some sort of mantra of the left now, the middle class. Uh, Yeah, on
3: on this past Monday's uh, debate, she uh, kept Referring to the
4: middle class again. What is this, the Trudeau speech all over again? Yeah. <laughs> you know, people have a vague notion that it's a good thing to be middle class, although they would be hard pressed to list the characteristics of the term if you've, if you've asked them, I think. Class struggle predates Karl Marx, although it was Marx whose writing stirred an entire political revolution between the lower proletariat class and the ruling class and the urban bourgeoisie. And here we have Trudeau bringing class into it again. Far be it for Trudeau to suggest that people be rich and prosperous. No, in stereotypical liberal Canadian terms, he wants people to shoot for the middle. We're number two, we're number two. He even had the audacity to disparage the one percenters, calling them that, at the UN, like some hippie protesting on Wall Street. You know, unmentioned by Trudeau is the fact that while his party has been labeled, usually by members of his party, the natural governing party of Canada, we still have the poor. We still have the homeless, the hopeless, the downtrodden, even after a cumulative 69 years of governance by the Grits during the 20th century. You
3: know, I have to tell you,
4: when I heard him speak, there he was. He's describing Canada as a
3: place where women are still not equal, where racism is the norm, where all this crap is happening. But we're here to help. Yeah. I, 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 I'm just going, What? And then when he brought up anxiety, that was not a word I ever expected to hear brought up in a political speech. I'm going, now I've got anxiety. Rightfully <laughs> <laughs> so.
4: Because, you know, it's him and people like him who give us anxiety. You know, he's he's describing all of these bad things about Canada, and yet they've been in power for 69 years uh, in the last century alone. You know, I remember... Really... They're the cause of
3: it. When I first got involved in politics, the and this was going way back to the late 70s, early 80s, the, the, the big saying of the liberals at the time was, quote, sharing is the great Canadian tradition. Right. And I remember addressing that because he's sharing other people's money.
4: It's easy to share when you don't own it. Yeah. Yeah. After 69 years of liberal rule, you'd think there'd be no poor. you think there'd be nothing to complain about after decades of governance by liberal leaders like Pearson, Trudeau, the Elder, and uh, Chrétiennes. But we do have a lot to complain about here in Canada, Mr. Trudeau, and not so politely. We complain because the conditions you talked about in your speech to your fellow kleptocrats in New York are a direct result of the poor governance of this country by people like you, your father, and by and large every prime minister since Sir John A. You want to learn from your mistakes? Here's what you do. First of all, from Rex Murphy, It's really time to stop bragging about how modest we are as one cannot honestly brag about being modest. (laughs) And besides, it's unseemly. Let other countries pay testimony to our worth, if they're so moved to do so. The rest is from me. People find it hard to make ends meet, because over 50 cents of every dollar they earn goes to government coffers to fund boondoggles like the ones you just committed to in your speech. Things like $2.65 billion over five years to fund so-called clean, low-carbon growth in developing countries. $800 million to do something called the Global Fund, whatever that is. Not one Canadian out of the sphere of Ottawa bureaucracy could tell you about it. And $13 billion to support an end to AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria by 2030. Yeah, right. By your own admission, many Canadians can't make ends meet, and yet you spend our money outside of your country. If AIDS, TB, and malaria aren't ended in the next 14 years, will we get our money back? Will you investigate why they weren't eradicated by then, as you claim they will be? Will you follow the money to see that it doesn't end up in the personal pockets of the corrupt politicians of the countries you're, you're sending it to? Or worse yet, their militaries? which is typical of what happens with government largesse sent from the West to developing countries. You ask the questions, very point blank here, is what will create the good, well-paying jobs that people want and need and deserve? First of all, governments don't create jobs, okay? Get that straight. They don't create jobs. They redistribute wealth. They're not supposed to, but that's what they do. You ask, what will build an economy that works for everyone? Three words, Mr. Trudeau, laissez-nous faire. That's what will build an economy that'll work for everyone. I'm not sure if he understands French. (laughs) (laughs) He'll ask, what will help to make the world a safer, more peaceful place? Well, since political Islam and socialism are the two biggest uh, threats to peace and security of the world, I would suggest that you uh, do not import it into this country, neither the um, Islam political Islam or the socialism. That'll help. I don't really think people like Trudeau understand how insulting it is, by the way, to uh, to other countries to suggest that we are in some way superior to them by shelling out all this so-called humanitarian aid, you know, or bringing in all these refugees.
3: It's been a tragic uh, mistake of the West to put position themselves
4: that way. Oh it was arrogant, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, if the President of the United States went on Canadian television and said that, "We hear you're having a hard time up there in Canada providing clean drinking water to the Aboriginals. We can send in the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and have them drinking clean water in no time. Oh, and by the way, we don't really uh, think your current Chinese head tax on home purchases in Vancouver is a very good policy. So perhaps we can also educate you on civility and freedom. You know, if the president said that to us, we'd tell him to get stuffed. Why can't you see that your grandiose largesse to developing countries can be taken as an insult To their integrity their sovereignty and their intelligence mr trudeau a handout is often taken as a slap in the face to people who didn't ask for it you say that canadians are frustrated that they can't get a job because they don't have work experience and they can't get work experience because they don't have a job well how pithy well guess who has to take the lion's share of the blame for that you and your fellow counterparts in the provinces who regulate the workplace so much that a kid couldn't even set up a shine stand on a street corner if he wanted to. The licensing, taxing, and regulating of entry-level jobs has killed them off. Not to mention that imposing a minimum wage explicitly makes it illegal for anyone to work at a task worth less than a minimum. Lesson to be learned, Mr. Prime Minister? Take the lead and abolish the federal minimum wage in regard to employees under federal jurisdiction and ask your counterparts in the provinces to do the same. Then you'll have entry-level jobs, giving people experience so that they can get good-paying jobs to enter what you call the middle class. You mentioned that you heard from women and girls who still face inequality in the workplace and violence just because they're women. Solution? Do not visit gender-segregated mosques in order to pander to those Muslims who believe that a woman has a value less than that of a man. (laughs) Instead of speaking about diversity at the Ottawa Mosque, which you did recently, why not refuse to speak to them until they openly allow women to sit at the front of the bus with the men? And while you're at it, you could ask them their opinion on gay marriage, individual rights, and atheists. I'd like to hear the response and what your response is to their response. You say you shared meals with retired seniors who worked hard all their lives and are now forced to rely on food banks. Well, remember how your father and his finance minister, Jean Chrétien, brought in double-digit inflation? Remember how a dollar used to be worth twice as much as it is now because of federal government spending and monetary policy? A loaf of bread cost 18 cents when your father took power in 1968. Today, a loaf of bread costs $2.53 dollars 53 A non-index pension loses value every year thanks to you, your spending on United Nations pets projects, your wealth redistribution schemes, and central bank inflationary policies. No wonder retirees rely on charity. And then you sound surprised. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned that people still have optimism. Well, I believe that optimism that you were seeing was due to the fact that only 27.08% of Canadian registered voters chose to vote Liberal, and that there is hope that you'll get turfed out of office come next election. That's right, only 27% of the people who were registered to vote voted for you, so don't even pretend to speak for them. You speak for the government of Canada, Justin Trudeau, but you do not necessarily speak for all of Canadians remember that the next time you're in a coffee shop church basement or mosque
3: Yeah, but, he, he called those places where people live I'm going I don't live in a park I don't live in a church <laughs> basement I don't
4: live in a mosque or, or a or, coffee shop yeah, he, yeah. He,
3: he, he specifically avoided places where people live
4: yeah how about going to the factories or you know where people yeah, live knock you know, on walk somebodys down, walk down the street knock on their door That's yeah exactly what I was gonna say yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mr. Trudeau, it is you who is exploiting the justifiable fear Canadians have over the state of the economy and the influx of unvetted Middle Eastern Muslims. It is you who has ramped up the fair level in this country with your lax security measures, your ineptitude in all things economic, your cozying up with the dictators at the United Nations, your less than mediocre opinion of Canada, and your contempt for any legitimate, reasonable criticism. Unlike you, I believe that Canada's strength lies not in believing nebulous platitudes like diversity, but in its long history of Western values, including individualism, capitalism, freedom of expression, freedom of speech, and being able to throw out people like you and your cronies out of office every four years.
1: Wait a minute, I've got a marvellous idea. The Queen doesn't have to come down from Balmoral at all. The visit shall take place in Scotland at Holyrood Palace. Out of the question why... We save the Queen a pointless journey. And there are three Scottish by-elections coming up soon. Every one of them marginal.
2: We'll hold them straight after the visit. Minister, we do not hold Head of Government visits for party political reasons, but for reasons of state. But my plan shows that Scotland is an equal partner in the United
1: Kingdom. She is Queen of Scotland too, you know. Scotland is full of marginal... I mean, depressed areas.
2: (laughs) Minister, I hardly think that we can exploit our sovereign by involving her in what some might call a squalid vote-grubbing exercise.
1: It's going to be Scotland. That is my policy decision. That's what I'm here for. Right Bernard? Right Humphrey? Well Good. I do... Th- Thank you. What have you got against the idea Bernard? I mean really. Oh, well uh, Sir Humphrey likes going to foreign embassies. You know with his white tie, tails, medals. It'll all be on a much smaller scale if it takes place in Scotland. You mean no room for Humphrey? Well, probably not. Only for the Permanent Secretary at the Scottish <laughs> office. <laughs> Has Sir Humphrey got lots of... Um, well, yes one or two minister and he's been recommended for the KBE in the next honours list. how do you know? I thought honours were a closely guarded secret. We're just getting reports of a coup d'etat in Buranda, the West African state that was formerly British Equatorial Africa. Early reports suggest that the commander in chief, Colonel Sedim Mohammed, has been declared president. It's not known what's happened to the former president, President Alam, who was due to pay an official visit to Britain next week.
2: You've heard the sad news, Minister? Yes, disaster. No, 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 just a slight inconvenience. No it's really perfectly simple to cancel the arrangements for the visit. Cancel the arrangements? You'll do no such Uh, thing. uh, We have no
1: choice Minister. I've just been speaking to the foreign secretary. We are reissuing the invitation for the new president.
2: But we haven't recognized his government. The wheels are in motion. But who is he? Mohammed something. But we don't know anything about him. What's he like? Humphrey. He's coming here on an unofficial visit. We're not putting him up for the Athenaeum. Minister! Buranda is in total confusion. We don't know... Who is behind him? We don't know whether he's Soviet-backed or just an ordinary Burandon with an eye for the main chance. We cannot take diplomatic risks. The government has no choice. But Her Majesty... Her Majesty will cope. She always does. (laughs) But who is he? The repercussions are almost too hideous to contemplate. We'll just have to find out about him. Well, we can't. All that we know is that he's an enigma. Buranda is potentially enormously rich. It needs
1: oil rigs. And we have idle shipyards on the Clyde moreover Buranda is essential to the government's African policy the government doesn't have an African policy <laughs> well it has now <laughs> and if he is marxist backed well who better to win him over to our side than her majesty moreover the people of Scotland have been promised an important state occasion we cannot go
2: back on our word not to mention three marginal by-elections <laughs> not to mention three <laughs> marginal by which <laughs> had nothing whatever to do with no of course not minister <laughs>
3: You are listening to our weekly broadcast of Just Right. Visit Media to make a voluntary donation to our efforts. And while you're there, sample some of our timeless past broadcasts, which are all archived for your listening enjoyment at your convenience. Not to mention, three marginal by-elections. <laughs> <laughs> As I hinted at our show's opening today, There's a general sense universally accepted that something's wrong with our democracies and governments. Here's what everybody thinks is, or a lot of people think is, the the way to correct all these issues is, we need electoral reform. We don't need new politicians, we need electoral reform. National Post columnist Andrew Coyne is someone who has been writing bizarro columns about his support for PR, proportional representation, political party finance reform, and now forced voting, which is a despicable concept, even if Australia does it, okay? National Post, London Free Press, September 10th. Headline, Why Mandatory Voting is a Good Fit by Andrew Coyne. And the subheading says, Forcing people to vote, even the apathetic and ignorant, won't cure the ills of democracy, but it will improve it,
4: Andrew Coyne says. Based on what evidence, Andrew? You won't believe How's it, it working in Australia, Andrew? Yeah. <laughs> I'm or thinking, Brazil? Yeah.
3: A good fit on what kind of monster? I mean, mandatory voting is a good fit for any country that worships at the altar of unbridled force. In a free society, in a civilized society, the initiation of force and coercion are prohibited by force in a defensive and retaliatory form. The whole country is up in arms about curing the ills of democracy when democracy isn't ill. Democracies don't fail, they end. They end when the people vote them to end. Coyne first begins his assertions and contradictory notions on the claim that Statistics Canada is calling the last census the best census since 1666, which was New France's first census. What accounts for this remarkable improvement, he asks? Quote, under the Liberals, the formerly voluntary under Harper long-form census was again made mandatory. And why was that a cause for celebration? Because a voluntary census can never be as representative a sample as a mandatory one. Mandatory voting is the other big issue that the Parliamentary Electoral Reform Committee has been asked to examine. It would do well, then, to keep the success of the long-form census in mind, because the case for mandatory voting is essentially the case for the mandatory census. The 68% who showed up to vote in the past elections are not a representative sample of the population. You ever hear such garbage? Yes, quite often, every day. (laughs) Turnout dominates party thinking about elections. It accounts for much of the cost and scale of the modern campaign. When everybody votes, turnout-based strategies cease to be relevant. (laughs) Well, that's so wrong, it isn't funny. Nothing changes in this regard. Parties don't want more voter turnout. They want more voter turnout for their party. They don't want more people voting for the other guy. If everybody's forced to vote, how does everybody's party's efforts to get people to vote for their party change at all? It doesn't. And then he continues, as important, the kinds of voters who are now typically underweighted in the current voting sample young people, aboriginal Canadians, and so on, will assume their weight. So now he's in favor of a completely racist identity politics, as he further convinces me that forced voting is despicable. Then he writes, Mandatory voting is similar in this regard to proportional representation. Rather than represent only those who voted for the winning candidate in each riding, PR systems seek to represent all the voters. Systems don't represent anybody, anytime. They're just pure process. MPs and MPPs, human beings, hello, are what represent other individuals.
4: Does he not recognize the fact that this is not a representative democracy? We elect members yeah. to parliament, not yeah. representatives. It's not even the
3: form of government we have.
4: And then he says, uh,
3: if government is about
4: seeking the greatest
3: good for the greatest number, this is surely elementary. Well, it's not what government's about, but nice try. It still leads you to majority rule. Listen to this. What's the downside, he writes? Ah, yes, the terrible toll on human freedom, that sacred right for which our ancestors fought, the right not to vote. But the imposition on liberty is trivial. Trot around to your local school and mark an X on a piece of paper once every four years or so. What a slime ball. <laughs> the contempt and cynicism with which Coin regards freedom, justifying one violation of freedom with
4: another. is just like what other, a lot of people do that. No, but I know that you put a, a bit of an edge to your voice yeah. when, you, when you said freedom. You know, yeah. just a little infringement on your freedom. Yeah, well, that's the thing free is, across. well, of course. But for him to suggest that freedom is a bad thing by saying that, or something that can be easily dismissed. Oh, it is. It's he, just he, he that's disgusting. He does. Absolutely he does disgusting.
3: And he says, uh, you know, he's talking about how, how trivial it is. He says fines for not voting are minor in Australia. It's about twenty bucks. Does he not know that in Ontario the win government is already planning to fine all voters for voting <laughs> <laughs> yes. by forcing them to subsidize their her party when they vote? And then get this: quote, voting is objectively an irrational act. The impact of any single vote on the outcome is not even worth the relatively minor cost in time and effort. I I, I, I can see the look on your face. Objectively? It's irrational, is what he says. Democracy isn't just for the better educated or the well-informed. It's for everybody. Forced voting would improve democracy at less cost. That's his conclusion. Whether you like it or not. Yeah. Well, the whole... Everything he oh jeez, under forced voting, <laughs> every individual's vote becomes even less impactful. If only a hundred people vote, my vote would be one percent, right? If a million people vote, my my vote's worth one one millionth. So it's never to any individual voter's interest to have more people vote. And then he says, you know, democracy isn't just for the better educated; it's for everybody. No, freedom is for everybody. What he's saying is that everybody has a right to force you to comply with their irrationalities, especially if they're not educated or well-informed. That's what he's saying. It's not the number of people who vote that count. It's the number of real choices they have at the polls. Right now in Ontario, there are three parties who all share the same agenda on essentials. Forcing people to vote for them is in no way to hold them accountable. It's the exact opposite. It's giving them a license to avoid any process of democracy altogether. If everybody's forced to vote, well, they're going to get your vote. They don't have to work for it. Andrew Coyne, are you not understanding what you're saying? You openly proclaim that you regard voting as objectively irrational. Irrationality meaning evil by every translation of that word I've ever encountered, and then insist that every citizen must be forced to act irrationally for the (laughs) sake of democracy. (laughs) Can can you interpret it any other way?
4: No, that's exactly Uh, uh, the way I heard it.
3: So, so how can I, as a rational individual, take you seriously? The fact that you've made such outrageous and indefensible statements does make me take your intentions seriously. You're one of the bad guys. But you're wearing a white cowboy hat. Although I've personally never threatened or harmed your life, your liberty, your property, you give not even a second thought to violating my life, liberty, and property. Trivial to you. Irrational to you. A waste of time to you, since you believe one vote won't make a difference to anything anyway. The ongoing series of commentaries that Andrew Coyne has been penning about electoral reform and ending first past the post in favour of PR is juvenile and so misinformed that it stuns me to see it being spouted in a newspaper like the National Post. By forcing us to be irrational as they are being, the coins of the world do not have to accept any responsibility or accountability for the kind of governments they're voting for, even if all they're doing is voting against another irrationality. If voting is indeed irrational, fear and ignorance based, which it is for those who support irrational parties and candidates, then a more rational form of reform would be to ban voting altogether. (laughs) (laughs) Which pretty much would put everybody in the same position as 100% Force vote. Well, it's irrational. Yeah. We should ban it. Yeah. <laughs> not being forced to do something is what rights are all about. Not being prevented from doing something that violates no one's life, liberty, or property is also what rights are all about. You'll know that you have individual rights when those two conditions apply. It's not voting that's irrational. It's the given political options that are irrational. For example, any political party or politician who takes climate fighting on the political level seriously is completely nuts. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. They're disconnected from reality and reason. And in Ontario, we got all three parties in the legislature 100% committed to that nutty goal. You can't fix bad governance or corrupt people by forcing people to vote. Forcing people to vote is irrational. But those who do not vote nevertheless consent to their government. They may not agree with their government, but they do consent to it. The thing that has always saved democracy in the past is having the right to rule with a majority, whether literal or not, and therefore morally. We see examples like Winston Churchill, Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan. If Andrew Coyne thinks that people like me should be forced to vote as a patriotic act of irrationality, then I vote that people like Coyne shouldn't be allowed to vote. When persuasion fails, just use force. And in the end, what is all the fuss about electoral reform, both on the financing level and voting level, really about? It's about corruption. The government exceeding its bounds and no longer being a government. The referee has become the only player in the game, while the rest look on from the sidelines and participate by permission only. There are no honest politicians possible in a dishonest game. Now, when we last heard from Yes Ministers, Minister Hacker earlier in the show, his concern with winning three by-elections for his party unwittingly led him into a political trap of his own making.
1: When do I have to be at Heathrow? Oh, I put you on the seat, Minister. You'll be at the House tonight till after the last plane. Wow. And now we're about to catch our first glimpse of President Selim Mohammed of Buranda. I know him. Catch Charlie. Charlie. We were at Eddie together. Really? Yeah, he's uh, not Celia Mohammed. he's Charles Umtali. Are you sure about this? You don't forget a name like Charlie Umtali? Uh, no,
2: do <laughs> Have we anything on this, Bernard?
1: Uh, well, I recall in the brief, Sir Humphrey, it stated that Colonel Selim Mohammed was converted to Islam some years ago. We didn't know his previous name, so we couldn't find out much about his background. Well, I can tell you all about it. He's a red-hot political economist. Got the top first, wiped
2: the floor with everyone. Oh, well, um, that's all right then. Is it why? Well, I think what Bernard means is that he'll know how to behave if he went to an English university. <laughs> Even if it was the LSE. (laughs) When you said he was red hot, were you speaking politically? Hmm. Partly. Never quite know where you are with
1: Charlie. Hmm. He's the sort of person who follows you into a revolving door and comes out first.
2: (laughs) No deep commitment? Only to Charlie. (laughs) I see. A politician, Minister.
0: Very droll, Humphrey. (laughs) Jim, come in. (laughs) How nice to see you again. Charlie, long time no see. You don't have to speak pigeon English to me, Jim. (laughs) (laughs) This is Humphrey
1: Appleby, my Permanent Under-Secretary. Your Excellency.
0: How do you do? Uh Do sit down. I've always thought that Permanent Under-Secretary is such a demeaning title. I beg your pardon? (laughs) Sounds like an assistant typist or something. (laughs) Whereas uh, you're really in charge of everything, aren't you? Well,
2: not quite everything. (laughs) Charlie,
0: I suppose I congratulate you on becoming head of state. Oh, thanks. It wasn't difficult. I didn't have to do any of the boring things like fighting elections. (laughs) (laughs) Or by elections. I'm delighted to see you but uh, is this purely a social visit or is there anything in particular you wanted to talk about because I, I do have to put the finishing touches to my speech
1: ah well yes actually we have seen an advanced copy you liked it oh. <laughs> um, Charlie, <laughs> may I speak frankly I mean we're old friends aren't we of course you must realize that that bit about colonialist oppression was a bit well very um, Well, actually, profoundly embarrassing. (laughs) That passage where you urged the Scots and the Irish to, uh... (laughs) Um,
0: I wonder if you could, um... give it a miss? Give it a miss? Yes. But this is something I feel very, very deeply to
2: be true. Surely the British don't believe in suppressing the truth? Good heavens, no! (laughs) I wonder if there's anything that might persuade the president to consider recasting that sentence and transferring the emphasis from the specific instance to the abstract concept without of course in any way impairing the conceptual integrity of the theme
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes May I change the subject? Oh Jim, while you were here I May mean, I sound you out in the proposal I was going to make to the Prime Minister at our talks? What proposal? Our little change of government has quite unnecessarily alarmed some of the investors in our oil industry. Only temporarily, of course, but uh, it doesn't mean that we need a little British investment to, to tie this over. To restore confidence, uh, you know. How much? Mm, Fifty million pounds. <laughs> Ask him on what terms? <laughs> On what terms? Mm. Repayment of the capital not to start before 10 years and, oh, Uh, 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 interest-free?
1: 50 million pounds, Uh, it's a lot of money.
0: Um, I see, well, in that case... uh, But that
1: doesn't mean to say we can't talk about it. Mm. Hey, Humphrey?
2: (sighs) Interest-free, 10 years, assuming that the interest would have been 10%. He's asking for a free gift of 50 million pounds. You know, it would appear that what you're
0: actually asking for is a free gift of about 50 million pounds. Hmm. But it's to your advantage. We would use the loan to buy all rigs built in the Clyde. Hmm.
4: well. <laughs>
2: He's asking us to give him 50 million pounds so that he can buy our oil rigs with our money. <laughs>
5: hmm,
1: reasonable to me reasonable minister. lots of jobs Humphrey. Uh, Charlie supposing it were possible to do this deal would you find it possible to make the uh, necessary cuts in your speech today? oh Mm, yes but I'd have to know now. (sighs) well I think we can come to agreement don't you Humphrey?
2: minister could I have a word with you? yes Will you excuse us, Your excuses were Excellency? <laughs> Is
1: anything wrong? Is anything right? He's offering us a way out. A way
2: out? You call a gift of 50 million pounds a way out? It's a loan. We'll call it what you like. We'll never get it back. Well, You're proposing to buy a way out of political involvement with 50 million pounds of public money. It's diplomacy. It's corruption, Minister. <laughs> K.B.E. Humpy? you mean Uh, yes I see (laughs) I suppose we don't want the Soviets to invest in Buranda, do we (laughs) yes right oh good
1: (laughs) Mr President I think we can come to terms after all well you know my price and you know mine (laughs) everyone has his price (laughs)
2: Yes, Minister.
3: Gas plant scandal, anyone? What we just heard from that episode of Yes, Minister could just as easily have been about Ontario's gas plant scandal, which cost Ontario taxpayers millions of dollars to pay for the Liberals' propping up of support in an Ontario by-election. One person who would have agreed with Andrew Coyne that democracy was irrational would have been Isabel Patterson. One warning before I begin... When Patterson uses the term democracy as a pejorative, what she's really referring to is majority rule, but more on that distinction in a moment or two. And this is what she writes. Quote, the American axiom asserted political equality as a corollary of the inalienable right of every man to liberty. Democracy was inadmissible because it must deny that right and lapse into despotism, as it always has done. It is not liberty and equality that are incompatible, but liberty and democracy. Liberty is a truly natural condition, for life itself is possible to a human being only by virtue of his capacity for independent action. Human life is of an order transcending the deterministic necessity of physics. Man exists by rational volition, free will. Therefore, the proper organization of society must be that of free individuals. But democracy is a collective term. It describes the aggregate as a whole and assumes that the right and authority reside in the whole. Now there's a big difference in how she describes democracy. Thus democracy revolves into pure process, and even the process is fictitious, for individuals cannot actually merge with one another. But if the authority resides in the collective whole, it is evident that with the disagreement of even one person, the whole is no longer existent. In practice, then, democ- democracy must abandon its own pretended entity of the collective whole and rely on majority. The material objection to democracy is that it has no structure, the practical defect corresponding to the moral defect. Failure to dis- discern that a political organization consists of both structure and mechanism has caused untold disaster throughout the ages, end quote. So Andrew Coyne, meet Isabel Patterson. She just called your arguments about mandatory voting morally defective, based on a total fiction, and will lead to untold disaster. And she's right. You're left. What Patterson is calling democracy, we on this show have been calling majority rule in contrast to democracy. I agree with Patterson that, quote, democracy is a collective term, end quote, but not in the sense that it implies in any way that individual rights and authority reside in the whole. That's collectivism, not democracy. The legitimate collective nature of democracy resides not in the source of individual rights, but in the social application of those rights. Consent. Consent is a politically operative principle in democratic politics, not majority rule, even though all political decisions must ultimately be decided by a majority, however defined. Even under a republic, Majorities win elections. Even in private corporations, majorities win elections, whether members of the board or shareholders. But nobody loses any rights to life, liberty, or or property in the process of voting. If that should ever happen as a consequence of a vote, then you will know with certainty that the decision is wrong and immoral. Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever referring to objectivists, too. He says, most objectivists use the word democracy as most people do, to refer to majority rule. I would say that democracy, properly defined, is a reference to the idea that the source of a government's authority is the demos, the public, whom they are to serve, as opposed to, say, a theocracy, in which a government's authority is said to come from God, whom the government serves. The result is that by opposing democracy, quote-unquote, Objectivist opposition to majority rule can be misinterpreted as opposition to government that's accountable to the governed. He says to me, using law-making power to violate the governed's life, liberty, and property, in that way disqualifies them from being called a government. And then I went to the dictionary, Funk and Wagnall's definition of democracy. Listen to the distinction a form of government in which political power resides in all the people and is exercised by them directly or is given to elected representatives. Now, there's nothing in this classic definition of democracy that would suggest that the rights reside in the people. They make it abundantly clear that it's political power that resides in the people, not their rights. That's a different thing. Through the principle of consent, which is always the missing thing. Now, Webster's 20th century dictionary Democracy means popular government, coming from the word demos, the people, and kratian to rule. Now, majority plays no necessary part of this relationship. If we're to assume from the outset that some people rule other people, then the whole concept of people rule becomes a contradiction and falls flat on its face. Then it does become a majority rule, not people rule of any kind. When you've got some pe- some people ruling others, how can you say everybody's there? A rational interpretation of combining the roots. Uh, the people with rule is that with everybody equal to everyone else, it can only mean that the people rule themselves as individuals, not as a collective, which is a metaphysical impossibility since collectives don't exist as real entities. But although Webster's list of definitions includes, quote, government by the people, either directly or through elected representatives, rule by the ruled, it also includes the opposite usage of the word as a separate definition, namely, majority rule. Now, objectivism's definition of democracy, while contextually proper within defined parameters, adds to the confusion, not just about democracy per se, but also about what a republic is in contrast. But both operate on majority rule in the political realm, and both have failed abjectly at preserving or establishing individual freedom or keeping the nation out of debt and despair. Leonard Peikoff wrote that the American system is not a democracy, it's a constitutional republic. Democracy, if you attach meaning to the terms, is a system of unlimited majority rule. The classic example, ancient Athens. And the symbol of it is the fate of Socrates, who was put to death legally because the majority didn't like what he was saying, although he had initiated no force and had violated no one's rights. Meanwhile, Ayn Rand wrote that if we discard morality and substitute for the collectivist doctrine of unlimited majority rule, and there, there she calls what it is, If we accept the idea that a majority may do anything that it pleases and that anything done by a majority is right because it's done by a majority, how are men to apply this in practice to their actual lives? Who is the majority? In relation to each particular person, all other people are potential members of that majority, which may now destroy him at its pleasure at any moment. Then each man and all men become enemies. Each has to fear and suspect all. Each must try to rob and murder first before he is robbed and murdered. And wrote Leonard Peikoff again, The American system is a constitution-limited republic restricted to the protection of individual rights. In such a system, majority rule is applicable only to lesser details, such as the selection of certain personnel. But the majority has no say over the basic principle governing the government. It has no power to ask for or gain the infringement of individual rights. And I'm just wondering, how's that working for the Americans? You know what I'm saying? (laughs) But here he's using the term majority rule again. Finally, for a civilized economy, this is Isabel Patterson writing again, which which consists of production and exchanges in a sequence extending through time and space, there must be an agency to witness long-term contracts and see they're fulfilled. In case an individual fails to inhibit himself, as he has agreed to do, or if he infringes the liberty or rights of another, the government will exact a forfeit or impose external restraints. That's what government does and is all it can do. It is a prohibitory and expropriative agency. Contract law is like a self-adjusting break, but the function of the break is prohibitory. End quote. Now, these comments, taken again from Isabel Patterson's The Function of Government, from her book, The God of the Machine, make it clear that government is, in terms of its mechanical action and function, a brake of sorts that can only do two things, prohibit or expropriate. As with the brakes on your car, all they can do is slow or stop the vehicle. They can't do anything else. That truth leads many libertarian conservative anarchist types to conclude that we'd be better off without government. They're confusing the institution of government with the actions of those sitting in the seats of that institution. Seats filled by people and parties who are not committed to governing, but ruling, using majority claims of support to justify their rule over others. From delusions of managing the economy, which means prohibiting economic freedom, to their grandest of grand delusions, fighting climate change, none of this constitutes government. Under the current crop of politicians in most governments around the world, the break has been disengaged. But what government actually does with that power of prohibition and expropriation is another matter entirely. Politicians committed to actually governing could accomplish seeming miracles overnight. And history has demonstrated this in the past from the steadfast and principled leadership of Winston Churchill to the courageous actions of a lone bureaucratic official, as once described by Milton Friedman in his Free to Choose series, who, with the stroke of a pen following World War II in Germany, nullified almost all the economic regulations and restrictions in the country, unleashing the power and energy of Germany's economic potential. Milton Friedman got into that little story, done totally outside the democratic process of any kind. Today, governments aren't being the break, they need a break, so that we can get a break. (laughs) Governments themselves are running out of control because the breaks on government have been released, and collectivism, not government, because we have much less of that, is growing at an unprecedented rate, and everyone can sense that we're heading for a crash of some sort, or at least some terrible form of a standstill for quite some time. Patterson points out why so many people falsely continue to believe that governments which most fail to see as prohibitory and expropriatory agencies are able to, quote, create jobs or expand markets or create new business opportunities, none of which is true. She uses the following quote to make her point. Quote, The governor of a steam engine is not merely a prohibitory mechanism, but turns on more steam when needed. And various electric controls work the same way. Why cannot political government so function, quote. And Patterson answers, when the governor of a steam engine turns on more steam, obviously the steam, the energy, must be there to turn on, and it must have been previously confined. The governor has not has no part in getting up the steam, producing energy, and as mechanism is only a release instrument, which implies previous constraint. The governor of the steam engine or the electric control as described are different. The confusion arises from the term governor. If it must be used, the exact statement of their function is that To govern the government, they place a limitation on government. In a political organization, this function is performed by a constitution, which establishes a limit beyond which government has no legitimate power. Whatever and wherever the government intervenes in a sequence of actions, it does so with an authorized act of prohibition or expropriation. Whatever else it may quote-unquote do is merely an act of release, a cessation of function, That is its nature. This is no less true if it is said that the government builds a dam, or any other construction. The government expropriates the funds and hires people to do the work. The the peculiar action of government is the action of expropriation." Now, that limit on government has long ago been exceeded, and that's why we're facing a political crisis of some sort in our future, a crisis that could actually be avoided if enough people voted rationally. Now, we ourselves have to put the brakes on our own presentation of Just Right for today, but the brakes are off again next week. Join us then, when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into colour, colour into black and white. Under the everything will be alright.
1: When a country is going downhill, it's time for someone to get into the driving seat. Put his foot on the accelerator. I I think you mean the brake.